This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will go over the topic of adhesive capsulitis from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Adhesive capsulitis is defined as pain and loss of motion in the shoulder with no other cause. The pathoanatomy is related to soft tissue scarring and contracture. The essential lesion involves the coracohumeral ligament as well as the rotator interval. And it's important to remember that fibroblastic proliferation of the capsular tissue is seen on biopsy. Bunker et al. examined biopsies of shoulder capsular tissues and described active fibroblastic proliferation accompanied by some transformation to a smooth muscle phenotype or myofibroblasts. They noted that the fibroblasts lay down collagen, which is similar in appearance to Dupuytren's disease of the hand, with no inflammation and no synovial involvement. Adhesive capsulitis is associated with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The condition is often bilateral and more resistant to treatment in these patients. Arcula et al. performed a cross-sectional study looking at the association between adhesive capsulitis and chronic diabetic complications, and the authors concluded that adhesive capsulitis is a common disorder in type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients and is associated with increased age in both types and associated with duration of diabetes in type 1 patients. Independent associations were found between adhesive capsulitis and autonomic neuropathy in both types of diabetes and history of myocardial infarction in type 1 diabetes patients. Neviaser et al. authored a review article detailing the clinical presentation and management of adhesive capsulitis. The authors say that the presence of diabetes is associated with a significantly worse prognosis, greater need for surgery, and suboptimal results regardless of treatment. While most cases of adhesive capsulitis are idiopathic, risk factors include females, age between 40 to 60, increased duration of diabetes as we just discussed, autonomic neuropathy, history of myocardial infarction, thyroid disorders that have an autoimmune etiology, previous surgery, particularly lung and breast surgery, prolonged immobilization, and extended hospitalization. Relevant anatomy to discuss include the capsule ligamentous structures and the rotator interval. The function of the capsule ligamentous structures is to contribute to the stability of the glenohumeral joint as well as to act as check reins against the extremes of motion in their non-pathologic state. The capsuloligamentous structures include the glenohumeral ligaments, which are the superior glenohumeral ligament, or SGHL, the middle glenohumeral ligament, or the MGHL, and the inferior glenohumeral ligament, or the IGHL complex, which is made up of components like the anterior band, the axillary fold, and the posterior band. The rotator interval is a triangular region between the anterior border of the supraspinatus and the superior border of the subscapularis. The rotator interval contains the long head of the biceps tendon, superior glenohumeral ligament, and coracohumeral ligaments. So again, the rotator interval is the area between the anterior edge of the supraspinatus tendon superiorly and the superior edge of the subscapularis tendon inferiorly. The medial border is comprised of the coracoid process and the lateral border is formed by the transverse humeral ligament. During shoulder arthroscopy, closure of the rotator interval can be used in patients with shoulder instability. Conversely, this area is often contracted in patients with adhesive capsulitis and may need to be released. 
Selecki et al. looked at cadaveric shoulder joints and the effects of arthroscopic thermal capsuloplasty on anterior and posterior glenohumeral translation. They found that closure or tightening of the rotator interval was an effective way to significantly reduce anterior and posterior glenohumeral translation in vitro. Harriman et al. studied the role of the rotator interval in terms of shoulder passive motion and stability. Their results showed that shoulder instability and occasional dislocation of the glenohumeral joint occurred inferiorly and posteriorly after sectioning of the rotator interval capsule. Meanwhile, imbrication of the rotator interval increased the resistance to inferior and posterior translation and provided more stability. Classification of adhesive capsulitis is divided into three clinical stages and four arthroscopic stages. The three clinical stages are the painful stage, the stiff stage, and the thawing stage. The painful stage is characterized by gradual onset of diffuse pain from six weeks to nine months. The stiff stage is characterized by decreased range of motion, affecting activities of daily living from four to nine months or more. And the thawing phase is characterized by gradual return of motion between five to 26 months. Stage one of the arthroscopic stages is characterized by patchy, fibrinous synovitis. Stage two is characterized by capsular contraction and fibrinous adhesions. Stage three is characterized by increasing contraction and resolving synovitis and stage 4 is characterized by severe contraction. Patients presenting with adhesive capsulitis complain of pain and stiffness. It causes a restricted intracapsular volume, pain, and global loss of motion. Loss of both active and passive motion helps to identify stiffness rather than weakness. On physical exam, they have a painful arc of motion and a decreased range of motion, especially external rotation. It is important to examine and document all seven planes of motion on physical exam. Recommended radiographic views for adhesive capsulitis include AP in neutral rotation, AP in internal rotation, AP in external rotation, a scapular Y view, and an axillary lateral. Findings on plane films may include disuse osteopenia, concomitant osteoarthritis, calcific tendinitis, or hardware indicating prior surgery. An MR arthrogram will typically show loss of the axillary recess and a decrease of the intracapsular volume, which indicates contracture of the joint capsule. Non-operative management for adhesive capsulitis includes NSAIDs, physical therapy, and intraarticular steroid injections. Physical therapy should involve a program of gentle, pain-free stretching as well as moist heat, and this should be supervised and last for at least three to six months. External rotation shoulder wand exercises are commonly used for the treatment of adhesive capsulitis to increase external range of motion of the shoulder. With the arm adducted and the elbow flexed, this exercise will put the least amount of stretch on the posterior capsule. Again, adhesive capsulitis is most commonly caused by contracture of the rotator interval. The rotator interval includes the anterior superior capsule, superior glenohumeral ligament, coracohumeral ligament, and the long head of the biceps tendon. The structure most commonly contracted is the anterior superior capsule, which limits external rotation when the arm is adducted. Kun et al. showed that in the neutral position, each ligament except the posterior capsule significantly affected the torque required for external rotation. The greatest effect on resisting external rotation at zero degrees of abduction was the entire inferior glenohumeral ligament, then the coracohumeral ligament, 
then the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, and finally the superior and middle glenohumeral ligaments. Non-operative management is successful in the vast majority of people, although patience is required. The most common complication is decreased range of motion compared to the contralateral extremity. Griggs et al. prospectively reviewed 75 consecutive patients, or 77 shoulders, with adhesive capsulitis. They showed that 90% of the patients reported a satisfactory outcome with a specific four-direction shoulder stretching exercise program. However, male gender and diabetes mellitus were associated with worse motion at the final evaluation. The authors also state that patients with more severe pain and functional limitations before treatment had relatively worse outcomes, but more aggressive treatment, such as manipulation or capsular release, was rarely necessary. Corette et al. studied the effect of physical therapy versus steroid injections in the treatment of adhesive capsulitis. Patients were randomized to one of four treatment groups, steroid plus physical therapy, steroid alone, saline injection plus physical therapy, and saline injection alone. Pain-slash-disability scores improve more significantly in the groups that receive steroid injections, so the authors recommend use of steroid injections coupled with home exercise programs to improve pain-slash-function in the setting of adhesive capsulitis. Levine et al. retrospectively reviewed the treatment and outcome of 234 patients with adhesive capsulitis. No significant difference was found for success of non-operative treatment versus operative treatment or patient gender. With supervised treatment, most patients with adhesive capsulitis experience resolution with non-operative measures in a relatively short period. Warner reviewed frozen shoulders and noted a difference between idiopathic adhesive capsulitis, which usually responds to non-operative therapy or closed manipulation, whereas shoulder stiffness due to trauma or surgery may necessitate either an arthroscopic or an open-release procedure. Nevieser et al. reviewed the management of adhesive capsulitis and state that the primary indication for surgical intervention is a failure to obtain symptomatic improvement and continued functional disability following six months of physical therapy. Operative options for adhesive capsulitis include manipulation under anesthesia, which is indicated for those patients who fail to improve with therapy, and NSAIDs. Manipulation under anesthesia may be combined with an arthroscopic surgical release. An arthroscopic surgical release is indicated only after extensive therapy has failed, that is, at least three to six months of extensive physical therapy. Surgical techniques include arthroscopic lysis of adhesions and or an arthroscopic rotator interval release. So when external rotation at zero degrees at the patient's side is limited, the most likely diagnosis is contracture of the rotator interval. Harriman et al. looked at the role of the rotator interval capsule in passive motion and stability of the shoulder. They found operative alteration of this capsular interval was found to affect flexion, extension, external rotation, and adduction of the humerus with respect to the scapula. Limitation of external motion was increased by operative imbrication of the rotator interval and decreased by sectioning of the rotator interval capsule. An arthroscopic release of the rotator interval involves release from the anterior biceps tendon, which is the landmark for the supraspinatus, to the superior edge of the subscapularis until the coracoacromial ligament is visualized. This results in the complete release of the rotator interval and its contents, like the superior glenohumeral ligament, coracohumeral ligament, and the contracted joint capsule, which is necessary to restore shoulder external rotation at the patient's side. 
Arthroscopic posterior capsular release will increase internal rotation and cross-body adduction. Jost et al. studied the anatomy of the rotator interval in cadaveric specimens and identified distinct medial and lateral regions with separate functional roles. The medial rotator interval was found to primarily control inferior translation of the adducted arm. The lateral rotator interval mainly influenced external rotation of the adducted arm, and the coracohumeral ligament was well-developed in all specimens and played a key role in both inferior translation and external rotation. Tetro et al. performed a cadaveric study of the rotator interval and described intraarticular anatomic parameters to guide complete release. With the arm in neutral rotation, the anterior edge of the biceps tendon at the glenoid rim is a useful landmark for the anterior edge of the supraspinatus. Arthroscopic release from the biceps tendon to the subscapularis should continue until the coracochromial ligament is visualized through the rotator interval defect. Use of these landmarks resulted in successful division of the superior glenohumeral ligament and the coracohumeral ligament in all specimens. Surgical complications can include axillary nerve injury, rotator cuff tendon disruption, iatrogenic chondral injury, fracture or dislocation, and recurrent stiffness. With respect to fracture or dislocation, it's extremely important to use caution for manipulation under anesthesia, especially in cases of osteoporotic bone, to avoid fractures and dislocations. As far as recurrent stiffness, adhesive capsulitis is commonly associated with decreased range of motion compared to the contralateral extremity. Griggs et al. reviewed 75 patients with phase 2 adhesive capsulitis who were treated non-operatively with a stretching program. At an average follow-up of 22 months, forward flexion increased by 19 degrees, but still remained 36 degrees less than the unaffected shoulder. Schaefer et al. reviewed 62 patients with adhesive capsulitis who were treated non-operatively with a stretching program. At an average follow-up of 7 years, 60% of patients had decreased range of motion in at least one plane when compared to a control group of normal shoulders. That's all for this review of adhesive capsulitis. This is the OrthoBullets Audio Review, a daily podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you tomorrow.